welcome to The Three Good Podcast, a weekend podcast where I talk about all things to do with positive psychology, well-being, resilience, mental health and emotional intelligence. I'm your host, Sukhpavia. Hi and welcome to this weekend's episode of The Three Good Podcast. This is episode 10, and in today's episode, I want to talk about well-being. I hope you've had a good couple of weeks and that you enjoyed the last podcast episode with Sarah Boyd. We had a really good conversation about positive psychology in practice, at work, in the context of thinking about change management methodologies and the way that we can think about appreciative inquiry. I thought it was a great I really enjoyed the talk. It was a really good talk with Sarah where we explored lots of good practice around how you can use positive psychology in the workplace, how it can help have different kinds of conversation and it's well worth listening to I think. I mean obviously I'd say that is my podcast. In today's episode then, what I think I'd like to cover is thinking about more than just the typical approaches to well-being that we might think of. So typically when you hear about well-being, it tends to be in the instances of your, your physical health and your mental health. So typically when we think about well-being, we tend to hear it talked about in terms of physical and mental health. And that's good. You know, we, we should definitely be focused on those areas of life because they definitely do matter. So when I think about the many different additional areas we could talk about, it's, uh, I'm going to choose a select few. And then, so as well as physical and mental health, which I think we can also consider areas such as emotional health as being distinct and different to mental health. I think we can talk about financial health and the impact that your finances have on your state of mind and your and uh, decisions that you might choose to make. I think we can talk about relationship health in many different respects. You know, I think we can talk about that in terms of a partner, family relationships, um, parent-child relationships, friendships, work relationships, you know, many different aspects to relationship health. Work health itself, you know, so not just um, not just having work, but is the work good for you, and are you able to to be your best at the, at work? I think we can also consider areas such as spiritual health and community health, and when we start to consider that there are many different areas of life that are important for us to pay attention to and that all of those influence what we might consider our well-being. That's when you really start to, I think, uncover and unpack that talking about well-being is more than just talking about your physical and your mental health. So I'm looking forward to exploring some of that in today's episode. So around the physical health aspects of life, when we think about physical health, we have a lot of information and a lot of research and a lot of 
effort that people have put into ensuring that our physical bodies are maintained as well as they can be. And, you know, we've benefited from this from absolutely years of people taking the time to properly research the uh, the the um, different ways that you can have good physical health. The uh, the common areas that people tend to talk about are are having a good diet, and in the main, that tends to be a, um, around ensuring that you have a good mix of food that helps you to that that helps sustain you in good and useful ways, you know. So um, commonly it's around factors such as having fruit and veg as part of a good and healthy mix of your regular diet and in that you're not needing to have to have meat regularly because it's not a necessity for the human body to have to eat meat. Um, In the same uh, way fish is a good option to have as well as keeping hydrated well with water as one of the main sources of fluid, um, restricting the levels of fizzy drinks that you might have, and and certainly having restricted levels, or not necessarily restricted levels, but uh, manageable levels of alcohol. And even there, you know, that there's quite a lot of very good research that shows that even uh, one glass of alcohol can have adverse effects on the body. And there are, of course, very many different considerations you have to take into account with all of that. Yeah, if you have intolerances or allergic reactions to certain types of food, then obviously you have to create and um, design a, a, a diet that works for you. You know, that's th- that has to be a given. And it's something which I know that many people do pay attention to because they do have those very specific dietary requirements and and they're able to function well as 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 well as they can because they uh because they control their diet in a very good and healthy way people also you know make very different claims around the benefits of alcohol particularly wine and they'll use examples like mediterranean countries where people drink wine regularly and it's a a normal part of the meals and how they let they tend to live long lives and i think when you look at what is also happening there i think wine drinking wine is one aspect of many other things that are happening well and it's not just that they are drinking wine as part of meals and that helps them to live well it is also other aspects of life such as the weather tends to be warmer and it's not just the warmer weather it's also other factors such as more availability of naturally grown foods walking as a natural as a much more natural way to get around places and very many opportunities for social inclusion to happen and i'm sure there are other things which i'm unaware of which when you put them together and you add those up that's what I think is important and and the effects the overall effects of the wine drinking are mitigated because there are very many other good and healthy activities happening whereas for example in 
the UK, we tend not to have some of those elements in abundance. And so there are other things that we do need to consider more regularly about how how do we enable some good behaviours to happen. And also around the drinking aspect, you know, it's quite well known that British culture does tend to have an unhealthy obsession with alcohol. And I say obsession, that's perhaps a strong word, but when you look at, when you go to the supermarket and you see, when you see the shelves, and there's normally at least two aisles full of alcohol compared to the range of other food they could make available, it signals quite strongly how seriously we take alcohol in this country. And not just that, but also you look on pretty much any high street, any local uh, shops that you might go to, and off-license is a very regular feature on those um, in our areas. Pubs are a re- very regular feature as well. So there is, an, there is an unhealthy attitude. There is an unhealthy attitude to alcohol and how we see that it has to be a part of our everyday living, which makes it really challenging to have good conversations around physical health because your diet is an important part of that. And if, you're, if the options around you lead you to a, to making decisions that are reinforcing choices that may not be great for you, then it makes it harder to make good choices about what you want to do. You add to that as well, that it's not just that the choices around you may reinforce a certain type of um, thinking. Your social circle may also be reinforcing those choices as well, where Wherefore, for many in um, in the UK, a social activity tends to involve alcohol in some way, where you meet up at a pub or a bar or somewhere else. Um, and if you go to a restaurant or if you go to have a meal or something, you know, there's nearly always alcohol involved in a night out. It's quite rare for it not to happen in that way. And... And so there are just considerations there that you that we do need to think about further. And obviously this is about people's personal choices as well. You, you don't have to drink. Yeah, everywhere does serve soft drinks, of course, and you can always drink water and what have, what have you as well. And it's less that there's those choices available. And I think if we pay better attention to what our overall lifestyle is and how alcohol plays a part in that, it becomes, um, we can start to make choices which are more in our favour than we might think we have control over. So that's enough evangelism, I think, for the, for a moment about alcohol. And on a, on a broader, uh, coming back to the diet level of the food piece as well, you know, what I'm really pleased about in this day and age is that we've got such good choices for food and what we can do. I have three uh, young children and over the years one of the things that we've always been clear about in terms of our parenting is we're going to absolutely restrict the level of junk food that they have and we will nearly always try and provide some kind of home-cooked food. And I'm, I'm really glad we've been able to make that kind of choice. And I absolutely appreciate as well, there's a level of privilege that's attached to that where we can make those choices, where we have the space and the time to be able to sit with our children and cook the food with them and they are quite good at eating and um, eating a range of food 
And so when we do, when we do choose, sometimes when we do choose to go and have um, something like a McDonald's or a KFC or something, it is a treat because it's quite few and far between. And for the kids, it's quite normal to not go to those kind of places to eat and that we will eat home-cooked food. That's just one example, I think, of how we, 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 can re- we do benefit from a better range of food choices available to us. And uh, additionally, I think, as, a, uh, as someone who's grown up in a um, Punjabi family, Punjabi cuisine tends to be quite vegetarian-led as well. There are a lot of meat choices available as well, but if you don't have those meat choices, there are plenty of other vegetarian choices which provide the same level of nutrients that you that you might get from meat options and in many cases are just as good and healthy for you and that's also been something which uh, I've been quite aware and mindful of. So I think on the physical health side of stuff when we think about the food choices and the, the fluids and the drinks that we have I think that's one aspect of stuff we can think about. Obviously, the other aspect of stuff that we tend to talk about is around physical exercise. And, you know, one of the things I'm really cautious of is that we don't have to think about physical exercise as in gym activity. You know, uh, one of the future podcast episodes I'm really looking forward to is where I'm going to be talking with Gemma Dale, who's a personal trainer, and we're going to be talking about physical health. And I, I really want to explore how we can help people think about what other kinds of physical activity can they do, which is, which is a good level of physical activity. And the way that I've understood this over the years is that the recommendation is you should be trying to do 30 minutes of exertive, and I don't even know if that's a word, I might have just made it up, 30 minutes of exertive activity three times a week. What that kind, what that means is, doing an activity that when you do it, you're out of breath for doing it, and having done, and and that's a good thing for the body because it helps keep the body in a prime condition where you are actively working the heart, the lungs, the blood flow, all of that stuff, um, to to keep the body functioning well. And what sometimes people get. Uh, drawn to immediately is oh that must mean I have to go to the gym or I have to go for a run or yeah I have to do something else where it's that's what you might associate with physical exercise or physical activity and yeah when I started thinking about this I, I thought actually but it doesn't have to be those things you know it could be things like um and and also it doesn't have to be 30 minutes of activity in one hit right it could be over a over a day and so you you can really start to play around with what that can mean and so things i think you can think about are things like um doing the hoover around the around your around your house or your flat where you live you know it's it's a it's not a strenuous activity but certainly, if you're doing it and you're trying, you're putting a bit of effort into it, it can be one of those activities that it can make you, that can make you not breathless, but you you feel that you are panting, 
and that's a good place because then you know that you've done something where you're moving a bit more actively than you might otherwise. Similarly, you know, like if you are, if you're a gardening type person and you are out in the garden and you're mowing the lawn, that's also one of those activities which is quite it involves having to be quite active and afterwards you're out of breath. Washing the car um, is a similar one. And you know, th so those are just some examples I think where you can think about, all right, so yeah, if you do that type of thing in the regular activities, that that definitely counts because you're, because the body is uh, being asked to do something in a way which is beyond the sitting down, going for a walk to the shop or walking to the, you know, doing the, doing the walk for uh, work or what have you. And, and other things which, you know, have been brought to light over the last, say, five to eight years are, are things like apps on your phone and Fitbits and what have you. You have challenges around uh, achieving numbers of steps and doing the couch to 5k challenge and things like that. But I think those are great because they really are a good way to be able to help promote a good set of activity and a good set of uh, regular fun um, with, with doing those things because there's always challenges involved um, you know where you can try and earn your badges or you can try and um, compete with others and those are good and healthy levels of activity. And then obviously if you are somebody who does like to go to the gym and try and do those kinds of things that's always, I think that's always a good thing, you know, it's, you know, I, I do go to the gym myself, and when I go, I'm quite clear about what kind of activities I'm going there to do, and they tend to be strength-building activities, and then that's, and for those of you who, who know me and who've met me, you, you'll know I'm not a big kind of guy, I'm quite slim, and so I'm quite aware that I just need to keep keep myself in a good physical condition, um, because it'd be quite easy to be sedentary and I don't like being sedentary. Well, one of the things that I, I do regularly reflect on is a piece of really fascinating research done by Martin Seligman into physical health and w what he found was that if you, if you live a sedentary lifestyle you're going to be more likely to fall foul of being ill because you're not helping the body to maintain itself well. And interestingly, uh, what he found in his research was that if you're an obese person and you have an active lifestyle, you are likely to be as healthy as somebody who's not obese and has an active lifestyle as well. Which is quite interesting because although obese people will still have some, uh, some regular health challenges because of the obesity, that they're physically active means that they are less likely to have serious health conditions because they're helping the body to be as maintained as well maintained as it can. If you are somebody who's not obese and you have a sedentary lifestyle, you're more likely to be regularly ill and um, susceptible to other health conditions because you're not enabling the body to keep itself well on a regular basis. So I think that set of thinking and that set of stuff around physical health is a good place to move on to talking about mental health. And 
you know, what's been really good over the recent years is the continued highlighted awareness of how mental health is manifest, how people ha- are more open and more willing to talk about their mental health, more so than we've ever experienced before. And one of the things that is really encouraging for me about that is that it helps people to understand that it's okay to talk about your mental health with your partners, with your friends, with your work colleagues, with your manager, with a psychiatrist, with a counsellor, therapist, because they're all, everyone can help in different ways. And campaigns from the um, groups such as Mind and Samaritans and Time to Change, they're all good things, you know, they, they help to encourage lots of very good conversation. And we do regularly hear about, sometimes we hear about high profile things from celebrities who are open up about their mental health. We all, and then when that happens, what you see is that people who look up to them as, as role models in different ways, there is a positive benefit that those people gain because they realise that if that person can do it, if they can open up about their mental health, that must mean it's okay and it must mean that I'm allowed to do the same as well, where I may not have done that previously. And so you do see a positive benefit of people sharing in that way and they, then they start to seek help, they start to seek the support they need to enable them to be better. And certainly I've benefited from taking time to really consider what other things I need to ensure that, I, that, I'm, that my mental health is staying in the right place. And to date, I'm fortunate that I've been able to seek out the right support I've needed when I've, when I've had different mental health challenges and because of a lot of these regular conversations that were happening around your ment- about mental health, I, I, knew, I was aware that, it's a, that I was in a position where I needed to be able to seek out help from therapy, counselling, because I was in a place where I needed, some, I needed that level of support. When you, when you do those, one of the things I've always realised with them is that you need to allow time for the benefits of that to to kick in, to really take hold, and to and for you to to learn the right kinds of behaviours and thinking and lifestyle that enables you to maintain a good level of mental health. And one of the things that I'm really pleased about is that I've got a really broad net, uh, network of people through social media where I regularly get to engage with people who who are open about their mental health challenges and it allows me to understand what what they what they experience how that impacts what they're doing on a day-to-day basis and so when we start to talk about it in more general terms with people who don't suffer those kind of conditions it allows me to come from a stance of empathy in ensuring that we we don't stigmatize anybody who does suffer from mental health and that we have open and honest conversations about opinions about mental health and how either we are affected or others are affected because of those different challenges that we may be facing. And there are good and regular practices that we can do ourselves. You know, one of the things that um, I think in recent times has become quite, in some cases, a fad is when we talk about mindfulness. And, you know, one of the things that I've 
been aware of around the topic of mindfulness is that there are claims that it can resolve mental health issues. And I'm always cautious about claims like that because I don't think that with any kind of condition, it, there's ever one just um, there's ever one solution that will make things better. I always believe that there's a number of things that need to be working together in order to enable a person to suffer less. And when they may, when they uh, and when instances may come back and they do um, hit episodes which are hard that they have good set of support mechanisms and activities they can do or or people they can talk to or uh, that they're then enabled to manage that hard and difficult period so that when they come through that and we all, we do know that you that most people suffering when they when they do hit an episode which is particularly hard that you will be able to come through that. What we can never know is what the length of that period will be. And we know that once the period surpasses and you come out the other side of it, that you're able to re-establish a good set of patterns and behaviours to start building back up into a, a position of regularity and normality of um, of not suffering. And... Um, and hopefully having some some elements of um, good activity, and I think mindfulness can be a can be a healthy activity to engage in when you appreciate what it can help with, and where where it doesn't where where sometimes you may need to consider other things as well. And I remember a, a few several years back, I listened to a talk by a um, I listened to a talk by somebody um, called Alan Wallace, and. He he had studied mindfulness quite quite deeply, um, and spent a lot of time with uh, Buddhist monks in their practice and how they understand it and what he was able to learn from them. And then he was able to come back to the Western world and think about how do we enable more people to become um, to access mindfulness. And he said one of the things around the challenges of mindfulness is that it it means that you have to be comfortable with your own thinking. And you have to be comfortable with sitting there with your own thoughts. But in Western, in, in many Western cultures, we are so averse to doing that, that we would rather sit with, or rather we would rather play a game of solitaire on your phone and spend the time doing that, as opposed to being able to just sit there and let you, and allow your thoughts to just go where they need to go. And that's quite telling. You know, it's definitely, and I, I certainly see the truism in that. That it is people do find it difficult to be able to just regularly allow themselves to sit with their thoughts and allow themselves to think what they need to. And sometimes people can feel that there's, you know, there's a discomfort that comes with that. And what mindfulness can allow for is a, a f- allowing your allowing those thoughts to happen. And also starting to interrogate for yourself, well, what are those thoughts trying to tell me? Are they useful thoughts? Can I think about them in good and better ways? Do I need to consider those in a different context? Is the line of thinking I'm on helpful to me? Is it helpful to others? Is it harmful to me? Is it harmful to others? And it can allow for a set of thinking practices which 
I've found personally to be quite beneficial. And I know many others find it quite beneficial. And at the same time, I know there are many, many people who absolutely rail against the practice of mindfulness because they seem, they feel no benefit from it. They feel no benefit from being able to just allow your thinking and allow your thoughts to happen in that kind of fashion, which is fine. You know, and like I say, it's never about, I never think there is just one way to enable good thinking and good practice to happen. There's nearly always multitude of ways that we can enable good things to, to take place. And around mental health, you know, if you're not comfortable with the practice of mindfulness, that's fine. There are very good other things that you can do to enable that you do have um, a good set of personal support mechanisms to allow for thoughts to be articulated. Um, you know, and that can happen in different ways. It's, and I think one of the key things around it is that is finding the right kind of thing that works for you so that you suffer less. And when you do have periods of hard times with mental health, that you have the right things to put into place to enable you to work through them and come out the period with and being able to, like I said earlier, being able to reestablish a good set of practices. And I think that leads us to also talking about emotional health as well and how we how we understand our emotions and how we understand what our emotions allow for, what they what purpose they serve. One of the regular podcasts that I listen to, and I'm, we mentioned last week uh, on the last episode with Sarah Boyd, is the Emotion at Work podcast that is done by my um, good friend Phil Wilcox. And one of the things I really regularly appreciate about it is a really research-led, evidence-led approach to emotions, what we understand about emotions, what those kind of insights can help us to understand about the human condition. And it's always, for me personally, I I always find it a a very insightful set of episodes and podcast episodes um, that he releases because it's a it's a proper look into how what does that mean for us and how do we usefully think about emotions and when i tend to think about emotional intelligence and emotional health where i normally come my starting position is is normally this our emotions are information for us to decide on how to act next over the existence of the human species we've learned We've had to adapt and learn how to respond to different situations with varying levels of immediacy and other levels of being able to think more rationally and plan uh, and strategize and, and do quite complicated tasks. And so at, uh, at its most base level, emotions are an immediate reaction to something we're experiencing. And I think when you start to think of our emotions in that way, it really starts to allow for a better understanding of what we can do with our emotions. And we, I think what it also starts to allow is that you don't have to label emotions as negative or positive. If you're having an angry reaction to something, that might be the exact right emotion for you to be feeling. And it's okay to be feeling the emotion. 
it's often what comes next with the anger that is that causes the problems where anger is often expressed in in um, ways that include violence harsh like bad, harsh and bad language harmful behavior to ourselves and to others and that's when you start to think that's when and that's why many associations are made where anger is normally seen as oh it's a bad thing you can't be feeling anger you know you have to um, and when people often say you have to control your anger and you need anger management and i think what we've learned over over recent times is that it's our reaction to our anger that is the problem not necessarily the anger itself because you know anger is fine as an emotion it does what it's need it needs to do you know something ha- you you something has stopped you from achieving a goal and so you are going to be angry about it and that's a, that, that's fine but it's how you do that that's the thing in question and you know when you think about other types of emotion that you might feel and the way you express them you know sometimes we have to consider things like our emotional health in relation to behaviors and that sometimes we get we can get our own wires crossed one of the important elements of addictive behavior is feeling happiness because something about the addictive behavior in, is allowing us to think that we feel happiness at that moment and so we keep on wanting to seek it and we keep on wanting to find ways to get that hit of happiness for one of a better way to describe that and it can lead to some quite unhealthy behaviors so just because people might be feeling happy doesn't necessarily mean they're approaching it in the right way because the behavior itself is quite a harmful set of behaviors to themselves and potentially to others as well so when we i think you know when you start to consider that's what emotional health can include and we can really start to think about how we understand our emotions and what that tells us and how we choose to act on those it really starts to enable a very different set of thinking and so around this as well then you know is and I've spoken previously on the podcast about emotional health and you know it's around having the right kind of support people around you you know do you have the right kind of people that you can talk to about your emotions this this i i know many people who are really uncomfortable talking about emotions and mostly i find that's because it's a, it's a set of conversations where there may not be a direct outcome and so the conversation itself may feel fruitless it may feel like there's no point to it i, I think that's an unfortunate set of thinking about how we talk about our emotions and particularly amongst men you know there's a certain style of talking about your emotions you know i'm, I'm i've been watching the um the tv series the sopranos and it's about a mob family and how the leader of the mob is constantly battling with his emotions and is constantly battling with his own phys- mental health state as well and it's a really i think it's those aspects of the program and the program is a very well written program it's really well acted as well but what we also see during the program is that emotions are expressed in different ways uh, when for example they may be expressing grief 
the men are only allowed to express it in certain ways. Um, or when the men may be feeling anger, it only gets expressed in violent ways. Or when the men may be having sex and it's about the entitlement and the ownership of women and the rea- and the attitude towards women they have and what that means for them as men and you and you start to really see that there's a you know of course it's a program and it's written in a certain way but it's also reflective of how a certain type of person thinks and so we you know you start to see examples and I certainly do that there are there are many ways in which we reinforce what a man should do we reinforce ways that women are expected to express their emotions and and for our emotional health that's not a great place to be and so it is important to be able to recognize for yourself who are the people that you can talk to about your emotions you know is it your partner is it your spouse is it your friends other work colleagues do you need to speak to a counselor or a therapist there are so many different ways to get that support to be able to have those conversations one of the other things i spoke about at the top of the episode was thinking about how do we think about our financial health when we think about our well-being because one of the things that we do have to acknowledge is that finances are important in life there are there and sure there are people who live minimal lifestyles yeah and there's some people who live that that kind of hermetic and ascetic lifestyle where or where they live in a monastery or where they live secluded from others and you go fine yeah you know that's if that's what they have if that if that's what they think they need for themselves then that's great right they they're able to live a lifestyle that works for them for the majority and for the very many that's not the case and we do need finances to be able to live because we have mortgages to pay or we have rents to pay or we have bills to pay you know we have things that we want to do we places we want to go activities that that you want to take part in and so we we do really have to consider what does how do we think about our financial health and what that enables for us and of course this is something that people do think about very very actively i just don't think we think about it in the context of well-being and i think what te- what tends to happen is that we tend to think about financial health in terms of financial security and savings and you know and when we think about it in those terms that's those are good things we should definitely be looking after i think what we also need to be very mindful of is that whatever your financial health is it will impact on where what your well-being is as well we and there are some you know there are cases quite clear cases where where people get really distressed about their financial situation i've experienced it myself where i'm i i get really stuck with my financial um with, with what i'm doing with my finances and so i i have to talk to others about some decisions i might need to make because i know that sometimes i can make bad choices when it comes to my finances and and sometimes that's hard to admit as a 40-year-old man but it's true and it's not an excuse i don't excuse sometimes make bad choices i just acknowledge that there are certain types of financial decisions i need to make where if i make the right choice it will allow me to be in a good place 
And if I make a bad choice, it creates stress and it creates distress. And I want to try and avoid those as much as possible. And sometimes that can be hard, you know, not for me personally, but just for anybody who's experiencing that kind of pressure, financial pressure, where it can be really hard to find a, a set of good solutions to enable you to be financially stable. And you know, there are very many cited studies of people not needing to have excessive wealth to be happy and to live well. And certainly I agree with that. And it's very much more often the case of having a a good set of financial practice that allows you to do the things you want to be able to do in a comfortable way. And I think that often means that we have to readjust our expectations of what we can and should be doing for ourselves as well. And personally, again, that's just a set of lessons I've had to learn quite, quite clearly for myself, is I've often allowed myself to spend a bit more and put it on a credit card, feel the stress later of having to pay that back. And that's not a great place to be. And so I've had to learn to readjust my expectations of what I should be doing and what I can be doing because of what my financial health allows for. And when we think about that in terms of our salary, what we are earning and the work health I spoke about earlier, you know, is it the right place for us? That's an important set of com considerations that many of us may not even have the privilege to think about. The financial status of what we're facing may determine and may demand that we just work in any job. And if we're just working in any job because the, the, sh the pressure of having to pay regular bills is the driver, then that more often than not means that your relationship with work is going to be a poor relationship with work. And so when people start to talk about it and they say, if you find, if you do the work you love, then you'll never work a day in your life. I hear those things and I, I really struggle because there are so many people out there who, who are working not because they don't want to find the work they love, but because they don't have a choice but to just have a job. They have to be out there, they have to be earning in order to pay for the bills, in order to make sure they don't fall into food poverty, which in the UK has become a really massive problem. I absolutely am stunned that there are people who are having to, there are more than a million families in the UK who are needing to use food bank facilities. That's such a damning indictment of how we've, of the current financial situation in the UK of families. A million families, that's not a small problem. It's a systemic problem. And the financial pressure that creates means that people aren't able to have the freedom to go out and find the right job for them and, and find a job that pays in the right kind of levels for them. They just have the pressure of needing to work so that they can just feed their family, pay the bills. Otherwise, they're going to be kicked out of their house and their home. And that just creates an ever decreasing and downward spiral of um, of consequences, which you don't want to have to be fall foul of. So when I when I think about work health, you know, I, I always try and balance and make sure that that in my own thinking, I'm not being prejudiced against those who are facing tough choices of where they work and what work they do. And then I also balance that with there are people out there who can make choices, who can make the right kind of choices for them to find the company that works for them and where they can produce good work for the company as well. And there's a, rep and there's a reciprocity of 
good outcomes, that you're paid well, that there's a good mechanism in place for recognising that ongoing work that you do and that you are fairly paid for that work. And people will always have an... People will always have a judgment of whether or not they're being paid fairly and a judgment of whether or not they should be paying more. And it's nearly always a question of, well, are you doing enough with what you have? And obviously, if you had more, it would allow for more. But that's never really the thing to question. The, the thing to question is nearly always, am I doing the right level of work for the, for the pay that I'm receiving? And I'm happy about doing that. And that can often involve needing to answer for yourself some difficult questions. If you're not in the right work and you have the option to be able to find a different line of work, how do you do that? How do you take that time to reinvest in yourself to find a new way to live and work? I know people who've done it and I admire them for it because they're making such active choices for their own life to be able to move forward in a way that makes sense for them. And I also fully recognise that there's a privilege attached to that, where people have made those choices because they're in a position where they can. And that may not be the case for many who are out there. And then I also think about the, the, the many cases we've heard about in recent years of companies like Amazon, where they have... Um, in their warehouse facilities, where they're not where they're not treating their staff fairly equity, with equity and with and in cases such as Sports Direct in the in their warehouses in the UK, in thinking about cases like Uber and the sexism that cases that rose out of that company, and these are big companies. These are yeah, we're talking thousands of employees being affected by systemic approaches to the work practice and the damage that causes to people. And sure, that's about leadership of the companies and sure, it's about the culture of those companies as well. And sometimes we're stuck. Sometimes we're stuck in having to work in those positions. And so there's always, uh, and so I always have a set of considerations as well as to how do we, how do we help provide better options for, for people who, who, who don't see that there are options available to them? You know, if you are working in an environment like that where you have to do the work because if you don't, you may not be able to pay your bills. How do we help that kind of person? That's, that can be really hard. And, you know, you forget about that. They may just be trying to sustain themselves. If you're trying to sustain a family, then you have a further set of pressures on you which, which only accumulate and create added levels of, and layers of, of stress and pressure. So when I think about work health, you know, it, and I think about what, how that impacts on our well-being, again, this is just a set of considerations where you start to think about, okay, that's, that's another th- clear set of things which can impact the way that people are able to live well. I spoke also earlier on about community health, and, and around community health, we really start to consider who, how, we, how we are with our neighbours. And, you know, I remember that there are, you know, there's TV programs produced on neighbours who, e- who hate each other. And I kind of marvel at that, where you just go, I mean, sure, I get it, right? That there are people who, who don't get on with the people living next door to them. And it can feel really hard because you're having to deal with these people who may be causing problems wantonly, willingly. And you may also be reacting to them in a certain way, which 
um, which emboldens them to to do more back. And that's that's a set of that can that can happen. I don't think it's a common reality, but certainly it's something that does happen to some people. And in a broader sense, you know, how do we in how do we help the people in our community to feel that they are welcome, to feel that they're included, to feel that they that we can take part in things together. I take today as an example. I went with my children to a local, our local town hall, where they've created a, a not-for-profit cinema screening, which is, I think, a great idea and a really nice way for the community to invest in the community itself. Where the where the local council has recognised that there's a way that they can attract the their residents in their in their council in their authority to come together. And experience something together and and invest that money back into a a community ethic and a community feeling. And I think it's activities like that. And, you know, when towns have things like markets that happen on a regular basis and they get known for them and you start to create a great sense of relationships and connections because of that. When you go to to the village pub or to your local pub in your town and you just sit down and have a good old drink with your friends and what have you. And, you know, I also um recognising that in earlier in this podcast, I spoke about the unhealthy obsession of that type of activity. And at the same time, I fully recognise that the, the social benefit that that kind of activity can bring as well. Alcohol consumption notwithstanding is just the aspect of a, a, social, a place that people can be social together. And those things are great, you know, that societal health, that community health is so important to thriving and for well-being. When we think about that, it's about, it's just as much about what we can do to be part of the community, take part in what the community offers, as well as doing things for the community and helping find ways for people to come together. One of my friends that I've made through Twitter, a gentleman named Doug Shaw, does a regular activity where he creates a painting, frames it, and leaves it in his community for people to find and take home. And I think it's such a great way to do something for the community where you're showing you're part of that community and you want others to enjoy being part of that community. And I see it as one example of how there are many people who do things in so many ways. And, you know, I think about things like community leaders who recognise that maybe there's a problem with antisocial behaviour in the community. So they try and get people to do things in different ways, in proactive ways, in healthy ways. And when you do things like that and you create good practice, it allows people to experience a different way of behaving with each other, a different way of interacting and connecting with each other. And I also think about things like local fairs and fates and playgrounds and what have you and how they can be natural places for people to come together. And that community health that grows, that that you strengthen from that kind of activity is great, absolutely great. And when I spoke about communities in one of the earlier podcasts, I spoke about these kind of things and how a focus on community also allows people to live really well. That they know that they're in a place where that if they need to ask for a neighbour for help or if they need to seek some support in the local place they're living in, there's likely to be a way that that can happen. And that's quite strengthening. That's quite emboldening. That's quite, that's quite strengthening. And it's quite a noble thing to happen. 
And I think the last piece I mentioned early on was about spiritual health and the impact that can have on well-being as well. And I, and I say the word spiritual as opposed to religious because I, you know, I do absolutely appreciate that there are some people who, who may not want to, who, who choose to not believe in God. And instead they choose to live against an, an ethic. And so I think they can both be captured under a heading of spiritual health. And when we, when we think about that, when we think about that, how the, the choices we, we make about how we live, the ethics that we choose to live by, the morals that we choose to live by, and where that guidance comes from, and how that allows us to make hopefully good choices about life, that spiritual health, I think, is vital for our well-being. Because what we are doing there is we're, we're enabling ourselves to to find a, a, a set of meaning and a set of values and a set of beliefs that are true to us. Having grown up in a Sikh community and in a Sikh family, I've spent a lot of time to try and make sure that I do understand my religion well, that I do try and understand what our gurus taught us as Sikhs, what it means to live well, what it means to live for others, how we think about God and the impact that can have on your own life, your own thinking, the choices that you make, the service to others. And what I enjoy about that is that it allows me to come back to a plate. It allows me to come back to an ethic. It allows me to come back to a set of guidance and principles that I know I can rely on. And I'm sure if you are a follower of faith, you'll experience that in your own way as well. And I think for people who choose to not follow a faith and to not follow a God, that they have their own way of being able to find that guidance in a way that's helpful to them. Because I think what's important about spiritual health is the recognition that there's a connection between people which can't always be explained by science and, um, and sometimes we have to consider what are, uh, what are some of the other things that are allowing for a group of people to live well together? And this is also why, and, and that's why I'm cautious that it doesn't have to be about religion. It can be about connection. It can be about the community. It can be about the network and how you cultivate that and what you do with it. And for those who do choose to follow a spiritual path, it allows for a set of practices which brings people together and allows them to experience joy together and allows them to experience fulfillment together and meaning together. So I think that in today's episode of of this exploration of well-being, what I'm hopeful for from today's episode on thinking about well-being is that we've taken it beyond the traditional thinking around physical health, mental health, and really consider that the other aspects I've spoken about just as important and just as vital in, in thinking about how well we live and what that means for our overall well-being and, how, uh, and the, the kind of choices that we choose to make. So I'm going to leave it there. And uh, as always, if you've been listening all the way, I thank you very much for your attention and for your time. If you're listening to this through iTunes and Apple, then please do leave a review because as I understand it, that helps to create a bit more uh, popularity around the podcast. If it's through Podbean or through 
your own app, then please do comment and or leave some kind of way of letting me know that you've heard this and that um, and, and what it's got you thinking in some ways as well. So until the next episode, hope you're having a good weekend and I'll catch you next time.